This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. The cable said that her husband was dead. It had come while she was getting her hair done, shampooed just before. Or it had come while she was walking back in the February air, hustling home to get ready for the party. The usual crew, the friends who had been keeping her company all these months while her husband was away. And now there was a cable that said that Bill was dead. There had been nothing in his letters, no reason to worry. He'd been so upbeat, even as the expedition had been held up in Shanghai, snared in the typical tangle of permits and payoffs. Bill's letters had been so positive. He said they'd be leaving for the bamboo forest in no time. The cable didn't say how her husband had died. Neither did his obituary. A big one in the New York Times. Befitting the scion of a wealthy family long familiar to readers of the paper's society page, William Hunter Harkness was a handsome Harvard man turned explorer, which was a type of guy there in the early 1930s. Bill was famous for bringing the Komodo dragon back from the wilds of Indonesia to frighten children at the Bronx Zoo and to comfort their parents that the dark corners of the world were tameable by handsome white Harvard men like Bill Harkness. They had read in the papers about his wedding to Ruth McCombs, who'd arrived in New York unannounced. No pedigree, no title. The daughter of a carpenter and a seamstress from Titusville, Pennsylvania, who'd fallen in love with the wider world through books and maps and set out to see it. First to college in Colorado, then teaching English in Cuba, before landing in Manhattan with no particular plan in the middle of the Jazz Age. She charmed her way into a job as a dress designer at one of the biggest fashion houses in the city. She made fabulous friends. She was no great beauty, she would tell you that herself, but she was brash and whip-smart and funny as hell. She owned rooms. And one night, who walks into one of those rooms but this handsome Harvard man? And they fell hard. He too had read all those books that helped her fall in love with the wider world. He too understood the magic of names on maps cities and mountains and river valleys. They talked about the places they would go one day while they were going all over New York. Speakeasies, wild parties, Harlem hotspots, the whole nine. It was a new world. He was rich, and they were young and drunk and alive. And at night, and on mornings after, they'd read to each other from those books, trace the ribbons of rivers that rippled blue across maps unfolded on the unmade bed and dream about where their lives together would take them. The world was theirs, and they would see it all. But first, Bill would see it without her. It was nothing personal. There would be time for all of it. But Bill Harkness was going to be the first person in the world to capture a live panda. No one in the West had even known the animal existed until about 1870. A French missionary saw a pelt on the wall of a local. In 1908, a famous naturalist spent months in the bamboo forest at the foot of the Himalayas where the pandas live, saw plenty of evidence that they were there, but never saw one. People started to speculate that they didn't exist at all. The New York Times wondered whether this was a unicorn situation. But then, in 1929, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. and his brother Kermit, themselves mustachioed, pith-helmeted Harvard men, became the first white people to hunt and kill a panda. A dubious honor, sure. But at least people believed that pandas were real now. And they could go look at it at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. 
which had funded the Roosevelt Boys' expedition to the tune of $100,000. And so Ruth's husband's expedition, bolder and more audacious than that, was both an adventure and a business trip. So they would be separated for two years, maybe more. But when he came back, famous and wealthier still, their adventure would begin. But her husband was dead, throat cancer. It came so quick, and Ruth Harkness was lost. There is no map that can lead you out of such grief. It is the way of grief. One just gropes until there is light. And there is no way of knowing the territory a dream occupies within you until you feel the contours of its absence. But Ruth Harkness knew where she was. 33 years old, a widow, no pedigree, no title, a million miles away from Titusville, with in-laws who had no intention of continuing to fund the fabulous life she had been leading with their son. She would inherit $20,000, and that would be that. Ruth's friends, pedigreed, entitled, and fabulous by birth, were kind, heartbroken for their heartbroken friend, and maybe a bit for themselves, because how long would she be able to hang? $20,000 wouldn't keep her in her apartment, or anywhere near the life they all enjoyed together. They knew they were going to lose their friend one day. They just couldn't imagine it would be so soon. On April 16, 1936, those friends waved from the docks as an ocean liner carried the widow Harkness away from New York. Some of them thought it was a joke. What woman in her right mind? What dress designer come high society party girl, with no husband and no prospects, gets on a boat to China? But there she was, disappearing over the horizon, with little more than a notion, an impulse, just the thought that had come to her, so bright and clear and true in the long nights in a bed to which her husband was never going to return. It was this. She would finish his work. She would cross the oceans of the world, to China, to a place she only knew from the books in her childhood bedroom. She would trace the Yangtze, the ribbon of river. She would stand at the foot of the Himalayas and search the bamboo forest, and she would bring back a panda. What else was she living for? What was living for if not for doing something like this? Ruth Harkness was the toast of pre-war Shanghai, in part because pre-war Shanghai, with its jazz and its gangsters and its opium and its rickshaw-riding colonials, was just the place for a woman like Harkness. Hard-drinking and witty and worldly and up for anything. She had party invitations and dinner companions and guides, would-be suitors, who were happy to help her. They liked her. And in a city internationally famous for its permissiveness, where anything could be bought for the right price, why, there were worse vices than indulging in romantic fantasy. She was introduced to Jack Young. He was Chinese. And his wife, Su Lin, she was Chinese-American. They were both adventurers. Jack had tracked the panda that the Roosevelt boys had shot. But they were unavailable, booked to lead some Harvard men in a climb up some Himalayan peak. But Jack's brother, Quentin, was available. He was only 22 years old. He'd just graduated from college. He'd never led an expedition before, but he'd watched his brother do it. And he was smart and brave and game. And Ruth Harkness liked the sound of that. She liked him, too. He was quick to laugh. He was almost comically handsome. He was six foot and ripped, thick black hair. And he didn't condescend or patronize. And he liked, he was shocked, really, to learn that she didn't either. 
She had none of the blithe bigotry of the other Westerners he'd known, and he readily accepted the chain of command. He was the guide, she was the boss. He'd walk her through options, and, and then he'd accept her decisions. And so there in Shanghai, with a plan coming together, and the days till their departure ticking away, Ruth started to feel less lost and feel that familiar thrill that came with names on maps and ribbons of river. Her husband was everywhere, in his papers, in notes on maps, in the shoes she had made for herself from an old pair of his boots. And in a cardboard box, she was unsure what to do with his ashes. But she was more sure, a bit every day, of what it was she was doing, at least right now, that she was heading into the unknown, but that she was heading toward light. From Shanghai by plane, rolling hills and rice paddies, the earth from above for the first time in her life, and up the Yangtze, the blue ribbon from maps, tea-colored there in real life, rolling on for days on end, past port towns and countryside, towering gorges draped with waterfalls, to Chengdu, the walled city, and on to the foothills of the Himalayas. Along the way, she sent letters home. Letters that said she felt something miraculous happening within her. There was a feeling that she was finding herself there in China, in its landscape, in its people, and in their language she was beginning to understand. Meaning emerging from what had been noise just before. Quentin Young taught her Mandarin. Words and phrases here and there. There was something there between the two of them. Despite the dozen-year difference in their ages, despite a fiancé he had back home, and despite her grief, they fell into each other's arms one night. They'd been hiking 20 and 30 miles a day, through swaying forests so thick there was perpetual twilight, drinking from streams fed by snowflakes that fell at the top of the world. Her body was new, strong like she'd never imagined. And when they came upon the ruins of an ancient monastery, a lamasary for Buddhist monks, a crumbling castle on a hill, fit for a woman on a quest for a unicorn. And they walked its echoing halls, watched white snow alight on green bamboo from its balconies. What else could they do but fall into each other's arms? They made camp there at the castle. Each day the party would fan out and slip off into the bamboo forest looking for pandas. Each night they'd return drink corn wine, smoke cigarettes. Ruth would tap away at her typewriter, bundled in clothes of yak wool and fox fur. She'd write letters home that spoke of joy. And one morning, fanned out in the forest, one of her party heard a cry, almost human, and followed it through the fog. There was a baby panda in the crook of a hollow tree. No one knew what to do. No one had found a baby panda in the crook of a hollow tree before. They didn't know how much it slept, didn't know if they should keep it warm or cold, didn't really know what sex it was. They guessed it was a girl. Ruth, ecstatic, overwhelmed, held it close, called for powdered milk and a baby bottle she had thought to pack back in Shanghai, just in case. And that night, Ruth and Quentin and the baby panda slept in a tangle of bodies and blankets and furs in the floor of a thousand-year-old monastery. And the next morning, Ruth spread her husband's ashes in the twisted roots of a flowering tree. And Ruth and Quentin and her expedition, and a panda cub they called Su Lin, headed east, moving quickly, 
buoyed by the success and the thrill of this creature who was always in Ruth's arms. She didn't have a child. She didn't want one. Didn't really know what to do with one. But the principles seemed to be the same. She kept it warm and fed it milk. She wore a fur coat. The panda's real mother had one after all. And when they were back in a boat in the Yangtze, going with the current this time, she kept the windows open and kept it cold and Tibet-like in there. She kept them open in her hotel room too back in Shanghai, when it seemed like every reporter in the Pacific Rim came to snap pictures of Ruth and Su Lin. They loved the whole story. And they loved Su Lin. None of them had ever seen a baby panda. And have you seen a baby panda? <laughs> They're so cute. It's ridiculous. Of course they loved her. And they loved Ruth too. Brave and witty Ruth, who had slipped so easily now back into her urbane self in her old life. When she said goodbye to Quentin and paid him out and sent him back to his fiancée, she gave him Bill's wedding ring. It was the only thing she could think to do to symbolize what they'd shared in the life that they had briefly lived together. That was December 1936. By April of the next year, Ruth and Su Lin were on a boat bound for San Francisco. And let me take a moment here while they crossed the Pacific, snuggling in a stateroom on an ocean liner, bobbing in the waves in some cloudless night. It's just a moment. We have time. That panda shouldn't be on that boat. I know that. She should be with her mother until she's weaned. And longer until her mother gets pregnant again, usually. When Su Lin would be about two. She shouldn't be put on display. She shouldn't be taken care of by a chain-smoking lady stumbling her way through exotic animal husbandry. I know that. My 21st century brain gets caught a bit on the whole thing that a white Western woman would spend an ungodly sum to command dozens of poorly compensated non-white laborers to risk life and limb for her dream. Makes me a little queasy. But I'll say this. Her memoir in her letters home Reveal someone ahead of her time. Without the casual racism of her day, or that thing where she's projecting virtue in this kind of angelic simplicity, this righteous, enviable primitivism, onto the people she meets. The kind of stuff that makes you have to squint and block out so you can see the person you want to see. And that's not Ruth Harkness. So just see her there in the bed with this panda, fumbling to find herself and to keep this creature alive. And back to the boat, as it pulls up to appear in San Francisco on a morning in April. Strangers line the docks, thrilled to see the famous pair, this impossibly adorable creature, and the plucky gal who risked it all to bring it back to America. And then back to New York, in a suite at the Biltmore. More reporters and photographers, and visitations from old friends, and meetings with zoos. There was no way that Ruth could keep Sulan. She knew that. She had no idea how to care for an adolescent panda. And she was already scratched up by this fuzzy little thing. And what would happen when Su Lin was 100 pounds or 250? There's no way. And so she sold Su Lin to the Brookfield Zoo in Chicago. Chicago fell in love with the panda. 325,000 people came to see her in the first few months on display. She had 24-hour care in a cage set up like a human nursery with a playpen and a cradle and a football to play with. And Ruth went back to New York knowing at least that the panda was in the best hands available. But back home, back in the old apartment, in this new version of her old life, 
without Bill, without Su Lin, with memories of China and of who she was in China, of what she felt like life could be in China. She needed to get back there. The zoo in Chicago gave her some money for a second expedition. It wasn't a lot, but there was enough money to get her back to Shanghai and enough to pull together a crew. She wouldn't need all the luxuries this time, wouldn't need first-class passage. She could rough it. She had been a person who could rough it not long ago. So she would go, and she would find Quentin, and they would head west together and do it again. She wanted her body back. This one had grown soft and slow, with too much drink and too much sorrow. They would find a male panda, a breeding partner for Sulin, so things didn't have to end. She didn't find Quentin in Shanghai, just word that he was married now and working a desk job in Hong Kong. She pressed on, got the band back together as best as she could, and headed out for the bamboo forest. But it was slow going, and the snow was piled high by the time they arrived at the old temple. And she was sick, with the flu she couldn't shake. So she would stay back while the party fanned out in the morning. She'd spend the day tapping away at her typewriter, and drinking too much corn wine, and write home about feelings that were nothing like joy. She wrote that she was lost, and afraid that she might be losing her mind a little. It went on like that for weeks upon weeks. And then one day, someone came back with a panda, just a bit older than Sulan. But there was something different. It was aggressive, and Ruth couldn't get it to eat. So she had to keep it in a cage. She slept on the floor beside it, and it took her a while to gain its trust, to even get close enough to know that it wasn't the boy she had wanted to bring back for Sulin. The zoo took the second panda and gave Ruth less money than before. But it could be enough. She needed to be there in this place where she was once herself. This time, this third trip, China was changed. Japanese warplanes shot up her hotel and killed 700 civilians caught out on the waterfront. She headed west as fast as she could, and the forest was changed. Everywhere she stopped, at every one of her old haunts, she heard about teams of trappers and hunters, about pandas swept up by the score, Heard about valleys where pandas had roamed for hundreds of years, where they didn't anymore. Ruth did find one, and brought it back as far as Chengdu, where she heard that the government was cracking down. There were too many pandas being killed and exported. She could have worked the system. She could have found a way to bring it back to the States. But instead, she turned around, hiked through the summer heat, and felt nothing but relief as she set the panda down. And it ran off and disappeared into the trees. Ruth Harkness would spend the rest of her life lost and groping. She tried India for a while. She followed a rumor of a South American panda deep into the jungles of Peru, where there was no panda and no light. She died at 47 years old of alcohol-related gastroenteritis. She was found in the bathtub of a Pittsburgh hotel. Sulin sits stuffed in a glass case at the Field Museum in Chicago. Her fur is a little patchy in spots. She's positioned on a rock. Her pose is awkward. She's shifting forward a bit, like she's sitting on a park bench made just a little bit too hot in the summer sun. She's been on that rock for 80 years, since just after her death, 
which was only a year or two after Ruth brought it back to America. They think Su Lin choked on some bamboo, something that probably could have happened in the wild. But it didn't. It happened in a zoo, in a cage with a cradle and a football. And it is strange to see her there today, stuffed. See any of the taxidermied animals, really, in these old museums. Because it is such an old way of seeing animals. Usually you just click on a link. Or you catch a documentary on TV. Or you go to a zoo. Some place that is so much nicer than it used to be when you were a kid. With bigger enclosures. Places nearly worthy of the word habitat. Some place that seems, maybe even to the animals themselves, like a place where they might belong. Ruth Harkness found hers but was never able to get back. But these habitats, these ones that are better than they were when you were a kid, that are so much better than when your parents were, Ruth had something to do with that. In the span of five years, the world went from thrilling at the exploits of the Roosevelt brothers and piling into the field museum to stare at their static trophy to seeing the animal, watching it play and eat and be an animal. Zoologists started realizing that they couldn't really study animal behavior without watching them actually behave. And zoos realized that the best way to keep crowds coming through the doors was by having zoologists figure out ways to keep the animals healthy and alive. Before Ruth found Sulin, the advertising pitch at zoos was literally, come see the gorilla or the giraffe while you can. There's no way we're not going to screw this up and kill them accidentally. Ruth did that. People all over the country were heartbroken when Sulin died. They had fallen in love with her because Ruth had fallen in love with her. Had talked so eloquently, with such charm and wit, about Sulin as an individual, with a personality and inherent dignity. And that was new. And it helped teach people a new way to see animals, to think of them as worthy of life. Ruth did that when she was heartbroken and fumbling to find something and found a panda and found a fleeting light. The Memory Palace is produced by me with engineering assistance from Kathy Tu and research assistance from Andrea Milne. We are supported in part by the Knight Foundation, by AdZert, which provides ad-serving technology to Radiotopia, and by MailChimp, which celebrates creativity, chaos, and teamwork. The Memory Palace is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a curated network of extraordinary story-driven shows. Learn more at radiotopia.fm. And while you're there, I want to make a special recommendation that you check out The Illusionist, which is a wonderful show of stories and conversations about language. From my IRL friend, Helen Zaltzman, who is soon to be your radio friend. The show is funny and insightful about how the way we talk and write and use language to think makes us human. She did a show about the use of the word pride as a political statement that made me teary. 
And there's also an episode where she and I try to learn and communicate in the world's smallest language. You might like that one too. So give the illusionist a listen. That's illusionist with an A because Helen is wry and British and charming like that. Thanks for listening to this show. If you get a second, rate The Memory Palace on iTunes or share your favorite episode of the show with someone you think might like it and might want it in their lives. Talk to you in a couple weeks.